EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. Well, welcome to Inside EMS, what I love to call the Chris and Kelly Show, the internationally recognized Inside EMS, by the way. And here is our favorite foreign correspondent, all the way from Pitkin, Louisiana, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? <laughs> is, is Louisiana a foreign country now? Yeah. Well, it is to uh, a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it might, it's probably third world as far as you're concerned. Uh, I mean, how, I many like languages do you, the, how many languages do you speak down there? Well, you you have to you have to be able to speak English, and you have to be able to speak Franglish. That's where you think it in French, but you speak it in English. Okay, okay. Uh, and you have to speak Cajun French, um, and, not, and your regular high school French, you know, that, yeah, that yeah, you yeah. were taught is not going to be sufficient. And you're increasingly going to have to learn to speak Spanish. So uh, uh, I still have my unopened copy of Spanish for medical professionals. Uh, and I'm still saying things like, does my chest hurt when you breathe? <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, you know, at least T- I can... TNS the Lord de Pecho? Yeah, that's right. Hola, soy paramedico. Yo soy paramedico. Me llamo Kelly. Yo estudio español en la universidad dos años. That's right. I just uh, I just add an O to everything and speak louder. That's okay. proven to overcome any language barrier. So I think we did settle that Louisiana is a foreign country. <laughs> That's right. That's right. How's things going down there in world famous Pitkin, Louisiana? It's, it's good, man. It's uh, I'm just I'm, I'm slowly pecking away at the honeydew list and and uh, uh, about to wrap up one EMT class and start another here in the next month or so. So yeah, I mean we we're still getting to talk to those students, right? What the heck's going on there? Yeah, yeah. Well, this this class did not work out the way I wanted it to. We had some issues uh, with internet connectivity at at the two sites. Uh, it seems like we picked the, and speaking of third world country, we picked the two sites in Louisiana where the internet, uh, is, uh, the most unreliable. So, uh, I had to about three fourths of the way through the course, uh, really abandon the broadcast model of the class and, and go back to teaching a, uh, a, um, conventional type class, uh, face to face. So it was it was disappointing that the technology failed us. Uh, it didn't work out as well as our first class. So um, something else to to put in the the learning toolbox. You know, when you do these things, you got to make absolutely sure that your facilities are uh, um, are up to snuff. You know, you, well, I don't know that it was the facilities oh, as yeah, much as it was internet. the technology. Well, yeah, the facility. You know, they 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 only have the best internet that. Uh, that oh, oh, they, oh, the facility know, of where you were teaching. Yeah, the local infrastructure can provide, you know, and and they have a, they have supposedly a high speed internet connection, um, and and they may well have a high speed internet connection on days I'm not there. But when I plug my computer in, it's like two ten cans with you know five million miles of string in between it. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, like the, the, the homemade walkie talkies we made as a kid. Oh, I know uh, what you meant. You I know what you meant. You just can't write, you just can't broadcast over something. Those like were the that, original so. cell phones right there. That's right. That's right. And everyone born after like 1975 is wondering what the heck we're talking about right now. That's right. I think even <laughs> later than that, man, later than that. Yeah. I don't think we started to get cell phones until what, like 93, 94 or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. I remember my Motorola bag phone. I thought I was so cool. Cause I have my bag phone in my, my truck and, and wired to the horn on my truck. So that whenever a phone call came in, I, it would honk my horn and really? I could, I could go, yeah, I could go stop, you know, put my dog away and, and, uh, or whatever dog I was working at the time and, and go answer the phone for one of my clients it made me feel so important. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. It sounds yeah. exciting the way you describe it. So I think we've got an interesting show to talk about. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, uh, I'm going to let you be the one to bring it in to everybody, and uh, let's go ahead and uh, chat about it. Yeah, uh, July 20th, uh, Patrick Lickus uh, published a, uh, a column in EMS One called uh, uh, Five Steps to an Accurate Physical Exam. Uh, and he's talking about uh, how to do a, uh, a physical exam and what type of exam is appropriate. Do you do a head-to-toe exam um, or do you do a focused physical exam? And, and it, occur- it occurs to me that that sort of thing is still confusing to a lot of EM- new EMS providers and the EMS instructors because they just um, – the nomenclature uh, is, is, is something that, that kind of trips them up. Yeah, in ninety three, ninety four, when they when they brought out the new EMT curriculum, they they introduced an entirely new set of nomenclature instead of a primary and secondary survey, which just about everyone in emergency care is familiar with. These new EMTs were were given terms like initial assessment and and rapid trauma assessment and focus history and physical exam, and to this day we still don't really know what they're talking about. Um, so I thought it'd be it'd be uh, a nice thing to to talk about what is a uh, uh, a detailed exam and what is the focused exam and, and when they're appropriate to, uh, to each patient. Yeah. And I think that you bring up a really great point because in, in class, I mean, we really kind of teach the, the overall assessment of, uh, doing mm-hmm. a cephalocaudal head to toe exam. Yeah. And one of the things that we need to kind of think about is when is that appropriate? When is that not yeah. appropriate? Because it really kind of, it really kind of leads to the uh, understanding that we should be doing a head to toe exam on every single patient, every single time. Now, yeah. I do think there is some benefits to doing that, and I don't know where you want to start, but I do want to be able to bring up the fact that we need to be able to use our skills uh, effectively to really kind of understand what's going on with the patient. I don't think there is any more important skill that an EMS provider has than his assessment skills. Without oh, yeah. your assessment skills, you're not going to be able to determine the treatment. You're not going to be able to de- determine the management. You're not going to be able to determine the protocol or protocols that you're going to be able to need mm-hmm. to manage that patient effectively. So when you think about it and people ask you, what's the most important skill that an EMS provider has? It has to focus and be the foundation of your uh, assessment skills, and I don't know if you agree or not. Oh, I, I totally agree. I've I've long said that there is no ceiling on your knowledge. There there may be a regulatory ceiling on your scope of practice as to what things you can do to a patient or do for a patient, but there is no limit on how much you can learn or know about a patient. I don't care if you're an EMT, an EMR, an advanced EMT, or a paramedic. Um, more assessment data is useful. Now, 
However, if you know, th- there's a point where you know you're you're gilding the lily a little bit, and you're you're gathering assessment data that is not relevant to patient care. And if you were doing uh, things that are not relevant to to stabilization of the patient's uh, condition, you're you're doing it wrong. But that being said, there's there's still really no limit on on what you can know about the patient. And one of the things I've always taught my students is is to abandon this notion of a medical assessment and a trauma assessment. That they really are two different. They really are not divided up that way. What you have instead is you have an assessment that you perform on a conscious, reliable patient who can participate in the exam. And you have an assessment that you perform on an unconscious or unreliable patient who cannot participate in the exam. And it doesn't really matter if it's a medical complaint or a trauma complaint. Uh, you know, and if your patient is awake and can talk to you, then it's perfectly appropriate to focus your exam on what the patient's chief complaint is. And that's that's what a focused physical exam is. You do a focused physical exam on a patient that can tell you what's wrong. If he happens to be a trauma patient who has fractured his ankle uh, and can say, hey, man, my right ankle hurts. Well, you're not needing to to auscultate breath sounds and palpate his upper arms and check his pupils right then okay you're focusing on his chief complaint on the other hand if that same trauma if that's you've got a patient who's who's laid out in the in the uh uh in the yard and and you don't know what happened to him uh you don't know if it's a diabetic emergency a stroke or a heart attack or anything else you you have to check him out from head to toe and figure out what the problem is and that's where your detailed physical exam comes into play uh and and that's something my students have struggled with early on until they until they realize that's what you got to do you know you you that's what the the purpose of a focused exam is to do is to focus on the patient's medical complaint You know, I think you're absolutely right. But one of the things that I do want to caution is that I do think there are some things that we need to pay attention to for our own professional development as well. Yes. Whether you're an EMT or whether you're a paramedic, here's what I always give as a piece of advice. Regardless of the complaint, if it's a, what did you say before? It's an ankle. Uh, Even if it's an ankle, I would listen to everybody's lung sounds and I would listen to everybody's heart sounds. The reason that's, that's the, you know, yeah. Develop proficiency at at those things. Right. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Okay. I'm used to that. I mean, you know, you're just, uh, (laughs) I mean, what do you expect from someone from a third world country? So, but one of the things you're absolutely right though, Kelly, I mean, cause you know, when you listen to lung sounds and you listen to heart tones, it really comes down to understanding Nah, we could sit in class and we can talk about Ronkai and we could talk about Rails and we can talk about, you know, Strider. But if you learn what normal is, you're going to pick up what abnormal mm-hmm. is. So if you know yeah. what clear and equal breath sounds are bilaterally in all lobes, so all of a sudden one day you're going to hear something and you may not know what it is. But at least when you go to the hospital, you could say, Doc, I hear something in the lungs. I'm not really sure what it is. Can you tell me what that is? And now you just taught yourself what Raul sounds like. Now you just yeah. taught, your, taught yourself what Ronkai sounds like. Same thing with heart sounds. With heart sounds, there's a normal S1 and S2. So you go ahead and you listen to what normal sounds like. And then all of a sudden, you're going to hear a little flush or a little whoosh. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to hear a little click. Or you're going to hear a little something. Hey, Love Doc. 
Doc. Dub D. You know, there's something going on in the heart right now. I don't yeah. know what it is. Can you explain that to me? And now you've just taught yourself what abnormal sounds like. But before you get there, you have to be able to know what normal sounds yes. like. And yes. that's the best advice that I have for you. I used to teach people heart sounds, Kelly, by having them either stick the stethoscope or stick their finger in their ear, and I would tap on their fingers to make the sounds of heart sounds. Hey, that's, yeah, that, yeah. that's a useful I'll have to try that. Hey, thank you very much for playing. But I've, one of I've the things th- is, I really have never thought of that before, but I'll have to mess with it. Yeah, and it's it's easy with a stethoscope, but if you don't have a stethoscope, put their index finger in the ear and you just tap on their fingers. But you have okay. to be able to know the tap. Think about it as a yeah. song, and you're tapping on the wheel of your steering wheel as you're going down the highway at uh, in the mobile home at 65 miles an hour. So, like, if you have Parkinson's, everyone's got a murmur, right? That's funny. That's really cute. Really, <laughs> that's that's awesome. That's my friend Kelly Grayson. Everybody. <laughs> so but 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 anyway so that's my point so again when we get back to the thought of uh, your your assessment skills being the most important it truly does need to come into another thing that's if you want to think about is look in people's eyes as well i mean eyes don't lie and people can lie to you about what they feel people can lie to you about their pain scale but their eyes aren't going to lie so when you think about the assessment even though if you're going to a detailed assessment or a trauma assessment or whatever you want to call it it really is important that you look at some of the ability, opportunity for you to gain the knowledge to have a very, very strong assessment skill. So, Kelly, I guess I want to ask you this question now that we've been babbling for a little bit. What do you feel is the most important component of conducting a successful physical exam? Um, uh, most important component of a, of a successful physical exam. First of all, explaining to the patient. Kelly, if you're going to recite every question twice, it's going to it's going to double the show in time. <laughs> well, so, that's okay, man. Yeah, okay. I, you you say so much extraneous information. You just I, have I to decipher I to it. Okay. Along. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to use um, sign language next time. Then. Um, uh, I, a couple of things, and I would I would I would echo Patrick's sentiments in his article. Uh, items number four and number five: um, explain yourself and document your positives and negatives, because what when you're documenting and, and when you're assessing a patient and forming a differential diagnosis, it, n- what you find um, is, is often documented, but we don't often document the pertinent negatives, you know, and, and the absence of physical findings that should be present with a particular clinical syndrome is relevant as well. Uh, or if those things aren't apparent in your exam, then then that needs to factor into your thinking and your documentation as well to paint a better clinical picture because what you're doing in your documentation is you're trying to paint a clinical picture uh, for someone uh, who has never laid eyes on the patient and, and you have to be as descriptive uh, but also as, as factual and objective as, as is possible to paint that accurate clinical picture. Um, so documenting your pertinent positives and pertinent negatives uh, is something that is often left out, the pertinent negatives mainly, um, but explaining yourself to the patient exactly what's going on uh, and not only explaining yourself to the patient, but explaining yourself to, to your partners. Um, this is something I emphasize in, in teaching psychomotor skills of, of patient assessment to my students. Um, I, I teach them that communication is the key. And you have to learn to think out loud. I place a great deal of emphasis on doing the appropriate assessment. Uh, and, and as these kids get get uh, stronger in their assessment skills, they internalize a lot of that, and they don't they don't say it out loud. Um, and 
to to someone who's seasoned at assessment, um, that you know, thinking it out loud may not be necessary. But your partner doesn't necessarily know what you're thinking, and most importantly, until these kids get a uh, a card and a patch on their arm, the skills station examiner doesn't know what they're thinking. So. Uh, the habit of explaining what you're doing throughout an assessment is, is something that I really harp on, um, saying that, you know, once you're out there on the street and you and your partner have got your, 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 uh, your choreography down and you can complete each other's sentences and you know what the other's thinking, uh, a lot of this can be intuitive and, and internalized. But until then, you need to talk out loud to make sure you're not stumbling over each other and uh, in, a, in a station. Uh, where you're testing that psychomotor skill, your your examiner knows your thought process. For example, you 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 walk up on the scene, and I I, I don't do my patient assessment uh, practice sessions and my scenario stuff uh, as a uh, you know they're always a trauma patient lying supine on the ground and they have a a wound somewhere between their nipples and an arterial bleed um even though that's probably what they're going to find at, at uh, a national registry exam um i'm going to teach them how to do a patient assessment and throw in all sorts of distractors in there so they may do a quote-unquote trauma assessment one day and their patient is awake alert oriented and talking to them um and boom, there you are. You're off the patient assessment trauma skill sheet and onto the medical one, even though it's a trauma patient. And I'll come up there and they say, hello, sir. I'm, I'm uh, Billy Bob with uh, XYZ Ambulance Service. How are you feeling today? And the patient says, um, I'm hurting pretty bad, man. I, I think I stepped in a hole and rolled my ankle. I may have broken it. So the seasoned EMT would move straight to assessment of his ankle uh, and and uh, without another thought because you have internalized the thought process that this guy is talking to me. He is alert, conscious. Therefore, he has a pulse. He has breathing. His airway is open. He is awake, alert, and oriented. My ABCDs are done. Um, but a skill station examiner doesn't know that. So I have to tell them, you know, that they have to explain themselves uh, to the skill station examiner as well. Um, and, and getting in the habit of explaining yourself to someone and explaining what you're doing, it's just good communication skills that are going to help you with scene choreography in the future. Um, it, it's, it's relevant to, to making sure that you pass the station when you're a student, but it's, it's equally relevant to making sure that your calls run smoothly when you're actually doing it in the field. Yeah, and I think you bring up a lot of great points right there. And one of the things that you also have to think about, I, I don't want to gloss over it because I think it was very, very important as you brought it up, was the fact of saying you, uh, your, your working diagnosis, your differential diagnosis, and then settling on a, you know, a final diagnosis. And you know, we get mm -hmm. back into this whole discussion of EMS providers don't diagnose. That's yeah, a bunch, we do. That's yeah. a bunch of BS. The people who say that don't know enough about our career field. Uh, they probably shouldn't be providers because they're not doing the job that they need to. But we do diagnose, and we have to diagnose so we're able to give good treatment and yeah. management of those patients. All right, off that soapbox. But one of the things that you need to be able to think about is your working diagnosis. What is it that you're going in to treat, you know, maybe based on the dispatch, uh, you know, maybe based on dispatch information? Then as you go there, don't allow that to get your tunnel vision. What you have to be able to do is do good assessment skills to make the determination if that's exactly what's going on or what are causing those symptoms to be happening. Now, Kelly mentioned differential diagnosis. You should be able to say, okay, I think that this is abdominal pain. 
Um, but talk yourself into abdominal pain. Don't talk yourself out of abdominal pain. What else could it be that's causing that abdominal pain? You know, could it be cardiac in nature? Could it be respiratory in nature? Could it be? And you now have to start to think about what else could be causing this problem. And then when you determine that there could be a differential diagnosis, you've got to be able to talk yourself out of those things so you can eventually so you can eventually get to a point of saying, this is what I think this is and why. Now, with that said, to have a good understanding of differential diagnosis, you've got to understand the difference in um, the disease processes. You've got to yeah. understand you, what the symptoms of CHF are, what the symptoms of diverticulitis is, what the symptoms of, and how they present themselves. Because if you don't know that, using the term and using differential diagnosis is not going to be helpful to you. Yeah. So when you talk about developing yourself and developing your EMS assessment skills, it is based on the fact of your knowledge. And your knowledge has to be tighter than a frog's butt. And, and the reason it has to be tight is because they'll drown because they're in the water, right, Kelly? So <laughs> yeah. it's got to be tight because you have to understand the, the signs and symptoms of those diagnoses that you're thinking about to talk yourself out of and talk yourself into your final diagnosis. You, you're so cute when you try to use those down-home analogies, city boy. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's, that's this, I, I, I get tickled just listening to it, but you have a, you have a good point there. And, and one of the things that, that, uh, kind of rankles me about the, the, uh, we don't diagnose crowd is they act like diagnosis is a special word and, and that it's a special voodoo that only a physician can do. Um, and, and invariably they'll bring up, well, lab tests and, and, and x-rays and diagnostic studies and all that kind of stuff. And it is not done that way it is not done that way the way physicians approach diagnosis um, is fundamentally no different than what we do they base they base diagnosis on the history and the physical examination of the patient and then they order the the test that they uh, deem necessary to confirm or disprove that diagnosis in other words they're making a di they're they're running through a list of differentials um, and they're ordering only the lab tests uh, and only the diagnostic studies that are going to rule out the most common differential and confirm the one that the, that they've uh, seized on in their physical exam and, and history. Um, that's no different than what we're doing. Um, now, exam uh, assessment in, in, in a hospital and assessment from, from uh, different types of healthcare providers may, may differ a little bit from, from the, what we do in the field as far as emergency care. We tend to do that problem-focused assessment uh, and, and really spend a lot of time on, on stabilization and resuscitation part of it. Um, whereas, you know, healthcare providers in, in, in non-emergency settings tend to focus more on, uh, a, uh, a more holistic whole body view of the patient. Um, for example, you know, we, we do that head to toe assessment, 
um, in in our physical examination, our physical assessment of the patient. Whereas if you read doctor's notes uh, and the the H&P in most patients' charts, they do a systems-based assessment. And I think there's some merit to doing a systems-based assessment. I don't think you have to do a head-to-toe exam. Uh, I think if you if we teach our students how to do a systems-based assessment well, and then have them let them choose whichever uh, combination of it feels most comfortable to them, uh, they get a better uh, sense of the interplay between body systems um, and and how uh, one thing can affect the other. Um, whereas if you just do head to toe, you, you kind of tend to focus on topographical anatomy um, and and uh, that interplay between body systems not really well, uh, well thought out. Um, but be that as it may, if you're going to form that differential diagnosis, you have to know something about uh, pathophysiology, what's going on. And then when you decide on treatment issues, primarily what your, your treatment uh, choice is going to be is going to focus on, A, can this help uh, the, the diagnosis that I have arrived, uh, arrived at in my assessment? And B, if my assessment is incorrect and it's one of the differentials, can this treatment harm one of those conditions. Uh, and generally speaking, the, the treatments that we choose and that we, we most often do um, in, in the field are those uh, high reward, low risk kind of treatments. Um, you know, for using abdominal pain, for example, you know, there's a myriad uh, conditions that can produce abdominal pain, and it's very hard uh, with physical examination sometimes to to arrive at one definitive diagnosis. On the other hand, if a patient is complaining of severe abdominal pain um, and you think it's diverticulitis and it turns out to be a ruptured appendix, or you think it might be ectopic pregnancy but it turns out to be um, a kidney stone, um, the treatment we would render for it is really in con- or really doesn't make a difference. Uh, we're going to manage their pain. Uh, if uh, shock or hyperperfusion are present, we're going to manage that. And it really doesn't matter how it started. Um, so high-reward, uh, high low-risk uh, interventions. Um, a lot of people lose sight of that, you know, that, that you're going to uh, do something wrong uh, or cause harm to the patient if your diagnosis is wrong. Um the treatments we render in the field really aren't that uh, uh, that specific. That uh, uh, one would uh, harm uh, one treatment would harm one of the other diagnoses. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What do you think are the core elements of a physical exam? Uh, and and is it limited by your provider certification, EMT, advanced EMT, paramedic? We'd like to know your thoughts. Email us at this show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.